0: Hello, and welcome to this episode of My 2020. As we look back on this historic year, most of us will think of COVID-19 and its devastating impact on our lives. For too many, this has been a difficult year, losing loved ones or losing jobs and businesses. For others, it has meant a sense of displacement. Most of us have focused on our immediate needs. Yet this has also been a global challenge, requiring international cooperation, and the United Nations has been at the center of coordinating global efforts. While the UN marked 75 years since its formation, the international organization and its agencies have had to contend with an unprecedented challenge in facing this pandemic. I'm joined today by an international leader who has dedicated her life to global public service and explaining big geopolitical developments to a wider public. The United Nations Undersecretary General for Global Communications, Melissa Fleming, has been instrumental in formulating messages for the UN but also combating fake news and misinformation. Melissa is also an acclaimed author and podcaster with her podcast Awake at Night. Melissa, welcome and thank you for joining.
1: Oh, it's great to be with you, Mina, even though we're um, across a big divide.
0: Indeed. It's always good to see you and I hope to see you in person soon. Um, Melissa, there's so much to get to, but first I want to ask you, how COVID nineteen impacted you personally? How did it change your lives? How did you adjust? Well, personally, you know,
1: I was in New York City in Manhattan when COVID nineteen hit hard, and no one was prepared for it here. Um, I think it was it was shocking because New York is such a vibrant place that is, you know, it's it's the crowds, it's the the energy from packed. Uh, you know, streets and theaters and and restaurants and bars and people standing in line and and engaging. And all of a sudden, you know, it seemed from one day to the next, the city went silent, the people went indoors, and the only sound that we were hearing were sirens, ambulance sirens. I live next to Mount Sinai Hospital, and I observed from my balcony how you know they cl- started closing off the street, um, the, you know, the ambulances kept coming and coming and coming. No more car traffic, just make room for the ambulances. And then they started adding refrigeration trucks. This was frightening. I don't think I caught the virus, I don't, but so many people did. Uh, and it, it just ground this city to a halt and shocked people um to an extent that they just weren't prepared. I mean, this is a city that lived through 9/11 and yet uh, there there's there was just there's just nothing that prepares you for this.
0: The the scenes you describe feels something that we'd expect in countries that go through conflict or going through major disaster. And of course, during your time at UNHCR, you witnessed a lot of that fallout. You saw what it was like to have these places devastated. But suddenly it felt like cities all over the world were going through the aftermath of a war without there actually being a war. Yeah,
1: it was like a silent a silent war that was, um, that was coming in and just wreaking havoc uh, everywhere. And, you know, it was for the first time, you know, I, we were dealing with a global crisis. And for the first time, really, since World War II, since the founding of the United Nations, a crisis that was really affecting everyone everywhere. At first, it was a global public health crisis. Um, it's almost immediately, though, um, turned into also a global economic crisis um, and a, a crisis that was affecting in particular, the most vulnerable people on our planet. I mean, it, there were lots of people who started out calling it the great equalizer. Like, there's nothing that that can protect us um, if we're rich or poor. You know, it, it doesn't it doesn't just dis- make these kind of distinctions. But it really quickly revealed itself to be a virus that re- that does go after the most vulnerable. It goes after the people who can't sit at home and comfortably do Zoom conferences um, for their meetings, but have to go out um, and serve the public in, in their frontline jobs, whether it's healthcare workers or people working in grocery stores. Um, it really exposed the numbers of people who are living day to day, hand to mouth. And as soon as they if it, you know, would lose their job, they lost their ability to feed themselves and their families. And so it became very quickly a hunger crisis as well. Um, a, a hunger crisis even here in the United States. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, I went and volunteered at a food bank um, in, in, our, in Harlem and, and people were lined up for hours. People who said that they had never thought that they would you know, go and ask for food somewhere they had lost their jobs due to the pandemic and they didn't have enough money to buy the food to feed their families and it was shocking to them and it was shocking for me to see and it's it's a phenomenon that of course is is even worse in places where people can't access
0: food i want to uh take a step back and just about about your personal experience and working from home, but also having to manage a team. So as you said, a lot of people started worrying about their own livelihoods. Could they lose their job? What would what would their lives be like? So how did you manage that looking after your team, not only in New York, but around the world?
1: Yeah, I do have I do have a communications team that is you know most colleagues are based in New York, but we have uh, communications offices all over the world, and it was it was affecting everyone. Um, my colleague in Moscow uh, was hit by COVID twice. He was one of those rare people who. Um, and it is very rare, but it got it a second time, and it was worse the second time. It was in the hospital, so I think as a manager, it was so important, you know, not only to make sure that everybody felt that they were assured that they weren't going to lose their jobs. I mean, that was it was a scary time, even for people who had contracts that were were lasting. They were worried about, you know, oh, would member states continue to pay the dues, and and so really this kind of assurance, but but also you know just. Needing to check in a lot more than before. Maybe maybe one should have done it before. Maybe there'll be more humanity in the workplace after this uh, this crisis. Because I do feel that the colleagues, the managers who are adjusting well, are making the effort to to make the call to say one on one. Let's have a meeting and let's ask. You know, how are you doing? How's your family? Is anybody impacted? Is how are you? You know, how are you feeling? We have seen a spike in mental health issues uh related to you know since the start of this uh, this crisis and you know we see that kind of subtly not necessarily because the employee is coming and, and telling us that they're facing mental health issues but because you know they're not performing in their work um they're they're not showing up so really the need to to spend that extra time um, and effort and understand that there are a lot of colleagues who are also not um feeling included by these Zoom meetings. I mean, when we used to meet in person, you know, especially junior colleagues, I think they could have that, you know, that chance encounter with more senior people. Um, they were maybe perhaps spotted in the other at the corner of the room and, and acknowledged more, um, you know, encounters in the cafes and that that kind of human interaction that makes you smile and, and keeps you going is is really what everybody is missing.
0: I was going to actually ask you, what do you miss most about your pre-COVID-19 life? But I guess you've answered it with human interaction. Anything else?
1: Well, for me personally, it is a human interaction. I find also I'm somebody who, who loves working in teams, and that works best when you're sitting in the room together, um, when you can kind of measure the temperature of the room, see body language, um, look at excitement in somebody else's. Facial expression, I mean, it's really hard to do when they're just little dots on on a video screen. so yeah, i miss I miss the the interaction. I miss um, some of the most the wonderful events that happen at the UN, um, cultural uh, events and also you know meetings of member states where there's more dialogue and interaction and maybe even
0: impact. You know when you um, spoke about seeing, Um, how people are in a room, who's attending, who's sitting where, the gestures. Of course, that's what many reporters would look out for in the General Assembly hall when world leaders came together, which world leader attended, whose speech. And of course, this year, we didn't get that. Um, We got televised uh, speeches. So I want to ask you about the UN General Assembly this year, but also the fact 2020 was supposed to be historic for marking the 75th uh, birthday of the UN and, and the, having the UN General Assembly session, but it all went online. So tell me about working through that, and do you think it was a missed moment for the UN? Well, obviously our plans had to change.
1: Everything that was supposed to be commemorative in person um, you know, didn't happen. Um, however, we did have more participation than we've ever had before from heads of state. So that was good. I mean, they they were all speaking and thinking about the UN, those who would didn't travel um, or wouldn't have traveled uh, were all of a sudden showing up and talking about multilateralism and the importance of global cooperation to get through this crisis, um, ending wars and forging peace. And so all the right messages, taking climate action. So this was, we had more heads of state than ever before showing up and, and speaking. Uh, Of course, what we didn't have were the thousands of journalists who used to accompany them to the UN and report on, you know, not just that speech, but all of the side events and the encounters in the hallways and the the bilateral meetings and the gossip, <laughs> the, the, the celebrities who were, uh, you know, trying to, to influence their cause, um, you know, with world leaders. There, there are all kinds of things happening in the sidelines of the GA that give it that richness and color that just didn't come through this year. However, I do think that we were able to meaningfully commemorate um, the 75-year history of the UN. We conducted, and this was just By chance, um, the Secretary General decided he didn't want this to just be a party and say, look how important and great the UN is and all it's done in these 75 years. Um, He wanted instead to conduct a listening exercise around the world. And so this started the year before. And uh, we had, uh, you know, basically in every country of the world, um, kind of groups gathering either in person or online. And, you know, we were asking them, you know, what is, what do you think is important uh, in this world? What worries you? What keeps you awake at night? What uh, concerns you? And uh, we also conducted a huge online survey um, and we compiled all this information. And that has allowed us to say, you know, our charter starts with we, the peoples. So let's take this year and listen to the people and see what worries them. And Really, you know, it kind of validated the areas of work that we're focusing on that are so important. And that is fighting inequality, addressing climate change with huge urgency, and uh, obviously overcoming this pandemic.
0: So the UN, as you mentioned earlier, was born out of a major global crisis, which was World War II, that impacted most people on the planet. And now we see another crisis that really is unprecedented in the history of the UN. Um, and so how do you think the organization will emerge from it? And will there be a shift? Will there be a dramatic change? Or, or do you think we've kind of we know what the key needs are and and it's more about just galvanizing our efforts?
1: I don't think I've ever seen uh, the UN so charged with energy to Not only, uh, you know, get people through this crisis uh, to mitigate suffering, but really to fundamentally change uh, the world to make it a better place. Our our new slogan is "recover better," or um, if we're talking about climate, "recover greener." Um, And it's really to seize this opportunity. There was a recent poll um, in in large number of countries that um, that concluded that people really don't want to go back because there's this assumption that people just want to go back to normal. You hear this all the time. But actually most people are saying, no, I don't want to go back there. I want to go back to someplace. I want to go forward to someplace better. And that's what we're trying to work on. You know, of course our humanitarian organizations are out there, um, you know, trying to protect people to provide the the public health needs that are so enormous during this pandemic. Um, but also to try to Make sure people don't go hungry. I mean, the World Food Program was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize this year for a reason um, recognition of all their work in stopping hunger, but also the linkage of you know hunger to so many things, you know conflict and development and stability for our future. So I think what I'm saying here is that we are we all kind of feel galvanized because we think that we have an opportunity to kind of pull out the sustainable development goals again and say, look at this blueprint. I mean, this is what we were working on. It has taken on new importance, new meaning, new urgency. The Paris Climate Agreement, um, more important than ever. And we're seeing really signs that not only governments, but also, you know, cities and individuals are already taking actions to say, you know, this is this is this is the moment I'm going to seize. This is our moment, collective moment of truth, to move to a better way, a, a greener future, a a more uh, sustainable future, and a future where, um, you know, there's much more equality as well.
0: Of course, the World Health Organization is uh, an international organization and a UN organization, but they've been, of course, really under the spotlight. So I wanted to ask you how you think they fared. I mean, suddenly everybody around the world is interested in the World Health Organization is paying attention to it because they feel how it can really impact their lives directly. How do you think it's fared and do you think that multilateralism has succeeded in this year?
1: WHO has now become a household name. That's for sure. So, you know, if from a, the perspective of a communicator, um, that is uh, great, and their platforms are exploding with with members of the public turning to them, looking and searching for information. Um, and you know, obviously, their you know their leaders are are featured on, on media interviews and TV. But it's also been very politicized, as we know, um, and you know I think falsely criticized in many ways. There's been a lot of misinformation about the organization, and their challenge um, has been that you know when we started out with this COVID nineteen crisis, what we recognized right away was that we're not just dealing with a public health emergency at a global scale; we are dealing with a communication crisis as well. And the WHO uh, coined the phrase "infodemic," and that is that we're living in an information environment where there is good information based on science available, but it's unfortunately mixed with information produced by bad actors who are polluting our media ecosystem and confusing the public, leading them down paths uh, where they, for example, you know, we're taking. Unproven uh, drugs. They were refusing to wear masks. They were and are um, believing that the coronavirus is just a hoax, that it's a plot, you know, to take over the world. Um, that a coming vaccine is beware because you're going to get microchips inserted into your body, or it's going to change your DNA. Uh, it's so this pandemic in a in the social media age is <laughs> it was quickly clear that we have never dealt with anything like this before, and the misinformation was traveling um, faster than the good information. This was a problem you know, for, for WHO because it reflected on WHO. WHO is a science organization. We were dealing with a novel coronavirus. They didn't have all the answers immediately. And their guidance shifted as did the guidance of the CDC and other public health organizations as more information became available the purveyors of misinformation or disinformation have no problem speaking in black and white and uh, terms whereas when you communicate science you need to put caveats in there you need to say uh, this is what we know today Um, and then two days later you might say actually um, what we thought then is no longer true. This is what we're recommending now. So the the challenge to communicate well was a massive challenge, and those who you know wanted to you know manipulate saw it and took advantage. So we're still facing this challenge. Um, we ha- I think we stepped up to it. Um, we now have a vaccine, a very promising three vaccines under development. But as soon as these very positive, you know, where everybody was saying, oh my God, this is a way out of this darkness, all kinds of misinformation started springing up. So, you know, this is what we're facing. And we at the UN are really making an effort to build the credibility of the United Nations and its organizations as the place to turn to for trusted, verified accurate uh, information. And, um, you know, that's our challenge.
0: You've also launched the Pledge to Pause campaign, which I thought was so smart. And the whole concept is when you get that message on your phone, just pause before you're forwarding it on. But it's such a campaign of its moment, so to speak, because you wouldn't think that you would have to do a campaign pledge to pause maybe even five years ago. So tell me some of the thinking behind it and, and the fact that you got the UN um, secretary general himself to do this campaign.
1: Yeah, well, this is this is under our um, campaign, our you know, general frame called Verified, where we're trying to flood the Internet with good content that's optimized for social media is entertaining, engaging, but based on science. And at the same time, we're trying to educate people on misinformation. So part of that was this campaign that we launched called, and and we're still pushing out, it's called Pledge to Pause. What we hope is that it's going to become a kind of social norm, like don't drink and drive and these kinds of things that are just ringing in your head. And it's take care before you share. Take care before you. If you see something on your WhatsApp or on Twitter and it looks too good to be true or it kind of makes your heart start to palpitate um, or, you know, the idea is just take even just 30 seconds and ask yourself the question, you know, what is the source? Uh, what was the date of this? Uh, maybe delve a little deeper. Is that picture for real? Ask I'm these these questions. So we've been pushing this out with a number of media partners all over the world, but we've also recruited 160,000 information volunteers around the world. We're calling them our digital first responders. Um, and we're equipping them with this knowledge of how to spot misinformation and slow the spread where it spreads. And that is in, in social media, it's in groups, it's peer to peer, and also to help us uh, share our good information.
0: Who benefits from fake news? That's a really good question, Mina. <laughs> no
1: one. No one. Um, it's it's really uh, it, it causes especially in in this time of of public health crisis. It, it's public harm. It makes people anxious. It leads them astray. I remember this story from a few weeks ago of a couple in Florida who were were in a Facebook group that was telling them that the coronavirus was a hoax and mask wearing was completely you know a plot you know to manipulate you and so they went about their lives not wearing a mask and continuing to socialize and going to to a bar and and both of them got COVID Um, and you know he had been also posting on his social media that this is a hoax on Facebook and all of his friends were kind of liking this and they both ended up in the ICU. And then he wrote this post um, as he was emerging from the ICU, but his wife still remained there in total critical condition in a coma, pleading with his followers saying, I was duped. Um, I am really sorry. And uh, this thing is for real and wear a mask and listen to the scientists, you know, they're right. And, you know, soon after his wife died. so." To your question, who does fake news serve? It serves no one.
0: So as you're dealing with this global health crisis and infodemic and the need to push back against fake news, what's been the biggest learning for you, Melissa?
1: I guess I'm I'm a person who maybe kind of naively believes that everybody wants good um, for themselves, for their families, for their communities and for the world, and I try to fundamentally believe this, but the number of individuals, of leaders who knowingly mislead the public to benefit themselves, either financially or political reasons, is just astonishing. And it's disheartening. It makes me lose a bit of faith. But on the other hand, then I look at all of the amazing people out there who really are you know, kind of charged by living a life of compassion and kindness and contributing to a a better world. So that's what keeps me going.
0: That's good to hear. So as you look towards 2021, what is your biggest priority? But also, what are you hoping, while we can't go back to normal, so to speak, but what are you hoping to see once we get through the worst of this pandemic?
1: Well, what gives me the most hope is the vaccine for COVID nineteen, and you know, in a way, there was a bit a lot of criticism that there was this like kind of global competition, and but actually, this competition is is producing already. We have three very promising vaccines that really do. I mean, they won't immediately end this pandemic, that but they're going to go a long way uh, to suppressing it and allowing us to move out of it. Um, so. Yes, my hope is that we'll be able to roll out a vaccine not just in rich countries. we need a vaccine that's available for everyone and everywhere and at the same time. I mean today is World AIDS Day, and I recall um, you know talking to people who went through it in developing countries and in poorer countries and watching as people in richer parts of the world were you know gaining access to treatment uh, recovering and as their Friends and relatives were dying because they didn't have that access. We can't let this happen with the COVID nineteen vaccine. We need to make sure that you know that everybody has access, and even if it's only in our enlightened self interest, you know nobody is safe until everybody is safe.
0: That's great to hear, um, Melissa. Thank you so much for your time. And hopefully next year we will have the vaccines and we'll be able to travel and meet in person again.
1: We will. We will for sure. And I'm quite sure of that, Mina. And I'm really looking forward to it.
0: Thank you for listening to My 2020. I've been your host, Mina Al-Arabi. This podcast was produced by Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the series on your preferred podcasting app. Please also continue to follow our podcasts and reporting on thenationalnews.com.